Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. Well, good morning and welcome. My name's Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, at Redemption Hill. I think I know most of you, but glad that you're here this morning. You made it through May. Yeah, was that a feat in your house as well? My gosh. Uh, I feel like I woke up in a new year on June 1st, so welcome here. We're on the last week of our prayer series, and we actually just finished at 8 o'clock this morning with our 24-hour prayer room. I went last night with some people to pray for Wonder School, and it was um, a pretty incredible experience, and hopefully we'll do it like at least once a year. It was, uh, I've never been a part of it. It's clear to all of us that God is leading us to be it. And to see how that changes our body. So this is the last week. We've been going through the Lord's Prayer, and today we've reached the end where Jesus instructs us to say, deliver us from evil. So we're talking about spiritual warfare today. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the light and easy sermon. Robert takes sabbatical right on time. Uh, So I'm going to start in the book of Daniel, chapter 10. You're welcome to jump in with me if you want. In the third year of the reign, um, also um, this is like a story, so settle in. In the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Daniel had another vision. He understood that the vision concerned events certain to happen in the future, times of war and great hardship. When this vision came to me, I, Daniel, had been in mourning for three whole weeks. All that time I had eaten no rich food. No meat or wine crossed my lips, and I used no fragrant lotions until those three weeks had passed. In April, as I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed with lightning, and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision, and my strength left me. My face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling, to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God, so listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I've been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up, still trembling. Then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. 
Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before God, remember that was three weeks ago, your request has been heard in heaven, and I've come to answer your prayer, but for 21 days, the spirit of the prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia, and now I'm here to explain what will happen to your people in the future, for this vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was speaking to me, I looked at the ground, unable to say a word. And then the one who looked kind of like a man touched my lips. And I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing in front of me, I'm filled with anguish because of the vision I have seen, my Lord, and I'm very weak. How can someone like me, your servant, talk to you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Then the one who looked like a man touched me again, and I felt my strength returning. Don't be afraid, he said, for you are very precious to God. Peace. Be encouraged. Be strong. As he spoke these words to me, I suddenly felt stronger and said to him, Please speak to me, my Lord, for you have strengthened me. He replied, Do you know why I have come? Soon I must return to fight against that spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. He's speaking of like an evil spirit over the land of Persia. And after that, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Greece will come. <laughs> Meanwhile, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. Okay. Redemption Hill, you ready to get weird today? <laughs> Let's do it. This is a passage from Daniel. He's a Jew of great nobility. He's exiled in Babylon during the second century, and he becomes this prolific prophet, and his visions of the future and of God's kingdom have formed so much even now of our understanding of the spiritual world beyond our own. And I'm starting with this vision because, first of all, it's really important for us to know that the Bible is very clear about spiritual warfare. It's not like a decision that we get to make if it's happening or not. It's real, and it's happening all the time, even though we rarely get to see it. But I also read this because um, I think it's like what a lot of us imagine when we hear the word spiritual warfare, like warrior angels and these great visions and ancient prophecies, um, like really bizarre scenes that we've only experienced probably through movies like Lord of the Rings. That's for you, Tyler. <laughs> or uh, if you have ever watched a horror movie with any sort of religious overtones like angels and demons fighting, we probably haven't experienced much of it in real life. But today I want us to reconsider spiritual warfare. Not that, not that it's happening, because it is, but what it might look like in, in our time. And then I also want us to consider those words that Jesus suggests in Matthew when he prays with that one simple single line that the Father would deliver us from evil. Prayer as spiritual warfare is a topic that comes with a lot of baggage for most of us. Like there's obviously an implication of war here, which means the first thing we have to admit is that there's two warring factions. And admitting that means that we're admitting to a spiritual reality beyond what we can see with our eyes, a realm full of uh, beings that we don't understand. Step one, <laughs> which is a lot. Step two, uh, sometimes 
we we have to decide when we believe something. We we can say it, but then we have to decide how we're going to respond to it. Um, and in reaction to that belief that there is a reality beyond ours, there's kind of three different ways that we normally respond to it. Um, sometimes prayer in spiritual battle, battle is used like kind of like a show. It's to display someone's spiritual prowess or power. And you'll know that kind of prayer when the warfare part seems to be aimed at someone, not for the sake of someone. Or when a great deal is being made about the person who's praying, not who the person is praying to. And we've probably seen this before. Maybe we grew up in churches that looked like that. On the other hand, there's also churches and traditions where the warfare part of our prayer life is almost non-existent. And instead, we get this like anemic version of what Jesus means um, when he asks us to pray like this. And these prayers are watered down for the sake of hedging our bets. Because if we take too big a risk and pray for something crazy, or even admit that something crazy might be going on, that otherworldly things are actually happening, we might get embarrassed, right? Or we might might be made to feel like fools when it seems like our prayers aren't changing anything at all. So instead, we just sort of hit the switch on that part of our prayer life. We pray small, and we pray safe. And then there's a third way of viewing spiritual warfare, which is to stay blind to it, to say that the world we can see is the world that exists, and it's ridiculous to imagine anything otherwise. And when I ask you to think about your experience with spiritual warfare, you probably fall into one of these camps. But here's what's interesting. When Jesus was teaching the Lord's Prayer over 2,000 years ago, he was also speaking to people in those three camps. Like, you're not that original. I'm sorry to tell you. We are not so, so special, and we figured so much out in the year 2023 Jesus' audience would have included opposing factions that are going to sound really familiar to us. There were the Essenes, who were like these really wild people who lived outside the city. Maybe we might call it like a compound. <laughs> they lived out in the wilderness. They didn't interact with society. They were super spiritual and just obsessed with spiritual warfare and really unable to move past that reality. So in, in our context, they might be like the hyper-spiritual, the people who will pray demons out of the city but aren't very interested in helping their actual neighbors. And then there were the Sadducees. Um, pr probably a lot of us are here. These are educated, sophisticated, highly political people. They didn't believe in angels or demons or life after death. They were very pragmatic and unwilling to consider a world beyond their own. When they hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, they're thinking the fall of Rome. They're thinking the right president in office. They're thinking we make changes here and now with what we can see, not with the unseen. And then there were the Pharisees. They kind of held that middle ground. They did believe in in spiritual warfare, they did believe in the darkness, but they also believed that the way that you overcome Satan is by being holy and righteous. 
when Jesus comes and, and he starts teaching, he boils down everything that these people have heard from the Old Testament or the Talmud or whatever they're reading into two um, rules. Do you remember what they are? The love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees went ahead and came up with 613 rules to obey. The two didn't feel good to them because there, weren't, there wasn't like a, a box that they could check. And also, uh, it doesn't look as good to follow two rules. Me, are you guys rule followers? Yeah, me too. No, Jesus came for me. Not for you, the sinners. 613, I would have washed my hands of it and said, you know, I think I'm actually, I'm not going to be, I'll just be outside the temple. I can't come in here. So the Pharisees believed that achieving personal holiness was the way to overcome the evil one. And maybe that's something deep down that you also believe. If we're good, if we're just good enough, then the good will spread. And we can make things good with our goodness. So there's the three different ways, and you can just pick one to follow, and we'll be done. Just kidding. Jesus, as usual, doesn't follow any of those ways. He has an entirely different approach, and we're going to look at what he does. Um, immediately after he begins his ministry, do you remember, he, he lives a normal life for three decades, and then he gets baptized, and then he and then he actually enters into the work that he was meant to do on earth. But right after he gets baptized, the first thing that he does is follow the spirit that leads him out into the wilderness. So he goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'm going to read that story to you. So Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. No, duh. <laughs> and the tempter came to him and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him along into the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his, order, his angels orders concerning you, and on their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, well, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him along to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came to him and began to serve him. Okay, so there's a lot of important things happening here. We could preach about this for a year, uh, but we're just going to focus on two things today, the two main characters. And we're going to focus on what they're doing. What is Satan doing and what is Jesus doing? Um, and we're going to ask about what Jesus is doing because there's this really insane verse in Ephesians that says, be imitators of God, which is really wild because it means that we can imitate God. And it's one reason that Jesus' life on planet Earth was such a gift because we actually have 
a flesh and blood example to imitate when we want to be more like God. It isn't just like, I hope I can be more like God. We look at what Jesus did and say, how can I be more like Jesus? So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's hungry. And I think that the way that I used to read this story was to think, oh, Satan came when Jesus was at his weakest. Like if I didn't eat for four days and my kids were like, will you play Monopoly with me? That, you know, I don't want to play Monopoly in the first place, but if I haven't eaten for four days, that board's getting flipped. You know, I don't want to do it. But there's another way to think about this, which is that Satan didn't come when Jesus was at his weakest to tempt him at his worst point. The opposite is true here because Jesus had just spent 40 days and 40 nights in absolute intimacy and communion with his father. Even the distraction of food has been removed from him. And if we actually believe what the Bible says, that in our weakness, God is strong, then Jesus is the strongest he's ever been right now. He stands his ground. But Satan doesn't know that. Satan looks at what's happening in our life and makes some assumptions. He makes some assumptions about Jesus here that are not true because once again, the kingdom of God is the complete opposite of the kingdom that we occupy here. Jesus is not swayed by Satan who's doing the only thing that he knows how to do. What's the only thing that Satan knows how to do? Lie. That's it. Lie. The reason that Jesus can stand up against his truth and where his power comes from is the fact that not only does he recognize the liar, not only does he recognize the lie, but he knows the truth. We have to have both. Um, Paul, who, who becomes a, a believer after Jesus is gone, so he's this first sort of famous convert who has this huge moment with um, Jesus and, and decides to stop persecuting and killing Christians and, and instead to follow Jesus. And he writes all these really important letters that have become our scripture. They become um, how we know how to follow Jesus. And he writes this really famous section of scripture in a letter to the people of Ephesus where he outlines what exactly it looks like to imitate God and to engage in spiritual warfare. It's Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to join me. All right. A final word, Paul says to the Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Caveat, his strategies are few and his strategies are weak. It's just to lie to you about who God is and who you are. That's it. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor, not yours, so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the breastplate of God's righteousness. 
for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Okay, raise your hand if you've heard this before. Yeah, I've been hearing about the armor of God since I was a little girl in Sunday school. And it, when I found out I had to preach about this, I was like, because I've heard it so many times and it's never really grabbed my imagination. We teach little kids songs about it. We have them practice putting on the armor of God. Uh, it's for sure going to be a theme at a church camp or a VBS at some point. I asked Matt, I was like, can you pull up something we might have seen? Is this is familiar to you? When I hear the armor of God, this is the guy I'm thinking of, like, oh, my belt of truth. You know, he's, that's him. There is no power behind it. It has an impetus. There's like, the power has been taken out of it because of the way that I've heard it and because I kind of stopped hearing about it after I was 12 years old. And so in my mind, this is what it looks like your faith shield to stop all the devil's tricks. And you know what? I want my kids to know this stuff. It's not like I'm like, get rid of it, you know? No more freckled kids in helmets. That's fine. But we're not that kid anymore. Now we are seeing real battlefields. We are seeing real fights against the darkness. And so we have to take what we heard when we were kids, or maybe we've never heard this at all. You can take it down now, thanks. And really think about what it looks like for us now. Because it looks like for us now. When I read those verses, even today as I'm reading too, it feels really cryptic to me. Um, like super biblical and not at all practical. I don't even know what it's talking about sometimes. And I wonder if some of you feel the same way about it. Here's what's important to remember about it. So we're going to lay this over it as the lens of what I'm about to say. Every part of this armor is a gift that we have to sort of passively receive. It's not something that we make ourselves. It's not something that we go and find. It's something that God gives to us, but we have to choose to use it. So I'm going to walk through these pictures that Paul's given us and try to think practically about what they might look for us, look like for us today. Okay, we're going to... <laughs> Yoink! Belt of truth. <laughs> we're going to do what Jesus did, and we're going to start by saying what's true. All he did was Satan was say what's true. There's no, like, exposition there. There's no excuses. Does he argue? No. Does he lawyer up? No. He says what's true. And this is where our Bible comes in because sometimes we don't know what to pray. We're talking about prayer, spiritual warfare. So when we recognize that we're, in, we're seeing a battle or we're in a battle, we can be so lost in, you know, like the smoke of war. That's a real thing, the fog of war. We do not know what's going on. And so when we don't know what to pray, we're going to start with what's true, and the Bible is what's true. 
You can pray the Bible. It's literally what Jesus did. He wasn't trying to be clever. He wasn't trying to pray something beautiful. He was saying God's word back to Satan. Here's an idea. We can memorize the Lord's Prayer and just start there. <laughs> then uh, we're supposed to put on our breastplate of righteousness. This is something you would put over your head, right, to protect your chest. I'm going to focus on the word righteousness here because unlike the Pharisees, we know that our righteousness doesn't come from our personal holiness or how right we are. Thank God, because I'm never right enough. Our righteousness comes from Jesus, in Jesus, through Jesus. So putting on that breastplate means that we spend time with Jesus and learn his way. Our righteousness is a gift from Jesus. We get it because Jesus gave it to us. But the way that we begin to understand that and to live that is to be with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus. Then we're supposed to lace up our shoes of the gospel of peace, uh, which feels funny because how can a life of peace be armor? I want you to think of someone in your life who really embodies peace. Think of how you feel when you're with them. There's a few people in my life that when I'm with them, I do not feel afraid. When I bring up complaints or there's things in my life that I'm worried about, they do not worry with me. <laughs> it's why I go to them in the first place. We battle the darkness by standing in the light. The Bible says that even the darkness is not dark to you, God, because God physically cannot be in the darkness without turning it to light. And when we are the people of God, this is true of us as well. When we are the people of the gospel, when our life is good news, when I am good news when I come into a room, when you are good news in a relationship, when you are good news at a family dinner, when you are the good news in your kids' classroom, you are putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace because you are bringing peace into the space that you enter. And let me tell you something, the world is starving for peace and they are starving for good news. Because as much as maybe we wanna ignore it or it's hard to see, we feel it. We know that things are heavy. Some people call it intuition or like, vibes or whatever <laughs> but you can go into a room you can be with a person and understand this doesn't feel right this doesn't feel safe and maybe you don't have words for it yet but guess what that's the holy spirit in you telling you that something isn't right here you're beginning to recognize the battleground. It's not intuition, you guys. It's the DNA that God gave you to recognize light and dark. You coming into a room is the gospel of peace. You coming into a room is the good news. We're also supposed to hold up the shield of faith. And if faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see, then we have to start with what we're hoping for. What is it that you're battling? What is it that the people around you are battling? 
hope isn't just some idea swirling around. <laughs> I hope this gets better. I hope you have a good day. I hope you have safe travels. Hope is a fight. And we're the ones that take the fight out. But we have to understand what we're hoping for first. And what we're hoping for, what we have faith will happen, even though we can't see it, is that the kingdom of darkness isn't going to win. It's not going to win. Maybe there's some battles that we're in right now that we feel like there is no way that God can fix this. There is no way that God can move me through this. You might not move through unscathed, quite frankly. We bear the scars of this world on us. But hope is us remembering that God will bring all things to his glory, believing that that's true. So hope has to start with a question. What lies do you see around you where God wants to break in and dismantle what's being believed? When things are dark, when things don't feel right, it has started with a lie. It is the only tool in the tool book for the darkness is to tell a lie. And we've said this before, but usually the lie has just enough truth. Just enough truth. When Satan says, jump off the building, what he's really saying is, is God enough to save you? When, G when Satan says, oh, turn that stone into bread, what he's really saying is God enough to provide for you? These are lies, but they feel a little bit true because maybe we don't really know if God's going to provide for us because maybe other people in our lives haven't provided for us before. And so we've kind of wrapped up these things that might be true about the people around us and said they must be true about God too. And hope Part of hope is separating the truth about people and the truth about God because they are not the same thing. He is other. This battle is other. We have to put on the helmet of salvation. Uh, obviously, a helmet protects your head, which is where your thoughts live. And... Um, I know I've talked about repentance before, and it's obviously another like super Bible word, and we hear it a lot. And really what repentance is uh, comes with that helmet of salvation because salvation starts with repentance, and repentance is God changing our mind. The helmet of salvation is me constantly and consistently asking God, what do you need to change my mind about? Where are you asking me to repent? Protect my thoughts, God. Change my thoughts, God. I cannot follow the way of Jesus if I'm following the way of Jesse. They're not the same thing. And so putting on the helmet of salvation is me literally saying to God, you have got to change my mind about what's going on. And often in spiritual battle, the thing that we need our mind changed about is where the battle is because, listen to me, people are never the enemy. People are never the enemy. And that is a trick that happens all the time. I've, I've really had to fight through uh, some of that this year 
with like obviously we're in this building because we had to leave the other building we were meeting in and uh, Wonder School didn't leave. We had to stay for the whole year that we had a lease that we signed and also we didn't really have anywhere to go. So we had to stay at Boise Friends for nine more months after you guys were like, bye. <laughs> we still had to go every day and it, that place was full of spiritual battle. We felt it. We knew it when we walked in there. But the thing that God had to change my mind about was the, pe the people who I was signing that lease with were not the enemy. And I was mad at them. And they were not treating us well. Like, there were things happening that were miserable. I was scared to open my email most Monday mornings. Like, what are they going to be mad about? What, like, what did we do wrong? All fall, I just had this, like, knot in my stomach about all the ways that they were going to, like, punish us for still being there. And they were the enemy to me. And God had to come in and change my mind about what was really going on. And that they were fighting a battle, and I was fighting a battle, but our battle was not against each other. Our battle was against the principalities of another world. And that shift changed everything. And it changed how we prayed, and it changed how we acted in the building. And then we could begin to pray for these people who felt like enemies. The only weapon that we pick up in this battle analogy is the sword of the spirit. And when we begin to understand the spiritual battle all around us, it's because the Holy Spirit is making us more sensitive to what's really going on in the world. We start paying attention to what God is paying attention to, and the spirit leads us to know our role in the battle. Picking up the sword of the spirit changes our stance towards the world. And our stance is that we are not fighting against the world. We are fighting for the world. We are fighting for the sake of the world. We are fighting for the sake of the people who God loves, who have not yet begun to love God. And the reason that we oftentimes mistake the people for the enemy or ignore the spiritual battle that's going on is because instead of staying sensitive to what's happening, we desensitize to what's happening, and then we chase after sensuality. And so when things feel dark and heavy, when things feel bad in our family, when we're not speaking to friends, when, when our marriage is a mess, we fill our life up with other things. We set down the sword and we pick up the thing that makes us feel comfortable. And then not only are we missing the work that God is doing in our lives, we miss out on the work that God is calling us to do in the lives of others. Picking up the sword changes our stance. And it puts us standing firmly with Jesus. And you guys, I have really amazing news. We don't have to be afraid of these battles because Jesus has already won the war. And it it feels scary sometimes, you know? Feels like the world's going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> we, say, we say it all the time, but the thing is, so did our parents, and so did our grandparents, and so did their grandparents, and so did their grandparents. This is not new. 
None of it's new. The battle has been going on as long as people have been on earth. We need to engage in the battle because there's still ground to be taken in your city, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your own heart. We have been given all we need to combat enemy lies. We start by praying what is true. We practice it by living as people of light and doing the opposite of what the world tells us to do. We, you know, our families are gossiping and there's this big problem. What's the opposite of that thing? What do we turn towards? Encouragement, hope, peace. We don't engage. Things are, are bad at work. Everybody's mad at the boss. Do we join in on that? Or do we turn the other way and pray for our boss? We're having a hard time at home. Maybe our marriage is in a tough season. Maybe our kids are in a tough season. Maybe we're single and we feel like we don't know what's next. We could do what the world says to do and desensitize ourselves to what's going on. Or we could pick up the sword of the Spirit and turn towards the thing that God's asking us to do and to live as people of light. If you don't know what to do, do the opposite of what the world's telling you to do, and you'll probably be on doing what God wants you to do. And the last thing we do is we declare God's name wherever we go. We declare God's victory in our lives whenever we see it so that the darkness cannot be allowed to keep us silent because silence breeds fear. Silence breeds lies. But you know what silence breeds most of all? Isolation. And isolation is the key. And it's the key to the battle for Satan. Because when we're alone, the only thoughts we have are our own. But when we're together, when we're practicing hearing from the Lord together, we get to go into battle together. And we get to battle for each other. Okay. We've been talking a lot about prayer these last six weeks, and we've heard a lot of different ways to pray. Today I'm making you think about some weird stuff and imagine battles that are going on that we don't even know about. And I, I want to encourage you by saying, God doesn't need you to pray the right thing for him to do the right thing. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't need you to pray the right thing for him to do the right thing. God is always going to do the right thing. And God is always going to be going after his people. We join in in prayer because prayer is changing us. And we join in in prayer because we want to hear what God's doing and we want to join him in it. We don't pray because we think that God needs us to pray for him to know what to do. I promise God is not sitting in heaven thinking, gosh, I hope those guys tell me the right thing to do today. 
and I hope they say it the right way. I hope they say the magical incantation that's going to make things right. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of prayer. Prayer is our conversation with a father who loves us and just wants to be with us. I mean, how many of you have thought about Andrew's example of being in the tent with Emmy more than once? We loved that story of a dad wanting to crawl down and be with his daughter. I think about that like once a week, Andrew. <laughs> that is prayer. Prayer is turning our attention towards what God has turned his attention to and being changed by that attention. We're going to uh, take communion today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And while you take communion, I want you to think about two things. Communion is this celebration that we take every week where we confess that God has won the battle against death. Whether we know it or not, that's what we're doing. We're celebrating what Jesus did. So as we take the juice and wine and bread today, I want you to think about, I want you to ask God, show me where a battle is being fought. There's something going on in your lives today that you brought in with you that felt heavy. Something you're worried about, something that's keeping you up at night, something that you are sick to death of. Ask God to show you where the battle is in that. What is it that you're not seeing? Peel it back, God. Show us the thing that's really going on. And then the second thing we're going to do is ask God, what's my place in the battle? Pray and ask. He's not a God of withholding. He's not making us jump through hoops. He wants to tell us. So we're going to ask him to show us where the real battle is at. And we know, right, that that's probably a lie that we're believing. So really what we're asking is, show us the lie. So the second thing we're going to ask is, show us the truth. Tell me what's true, God. Tell me what's true about that person. Tell me what's true about that situation. Tell me what's true about myself. And I'm listening for what to do next. After we take communion, I'm going to come back up and we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together one more time. Okay? So during this song, just come on up and go back to your seats and spend some time asking God to show you those things. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.